All right, well, turn in your Bible to Psalm 119. Psalm 119. As we get towards the end of this psalm, hopefully a lot of the themes that you're hearing will sound familiar. Because this whole psalm is about God's law. 176 verses about it. And there's a lot of ideas that are repeated throughout it, but with different emphasis in different verses. And so I know I find myself sometimes going back to the same passages and ideas to explain things again. But that's a good thing. The repetition should help us as we get our minds around God's law. And the particular verses we're going to look at this morning are verses 161 to 164. And in these verses, one of the ideas that you're going to see is that the psalmist is persecuted by princes as he obeys God's law. That means the princes are standing in opposition to God's law. That's not how it should be, of course. But we see that in our world, and so this morning, after we look at these four verses individually, we're going to spend the second half of our time once again considering how the rulers of this world should relate to God's law. What is God's design? What is their responsibility? And that will help us with our response to them and what that should be as well. But first, Psalm 119, verses 161 to 164. So follow along as I read. Princes persecute me without cause, but my heart stands in awe of your words. I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil. I hate and abhor falsehood, but I love your law. Seven times a day I praise you for your righteous rules. Well, let's begin with verse 161. Princes persecute me without cause, but my heart stands in awe of your words. Like I said, we're going to dig into this concept a little bit more later on. But as I explain this verse right now, all I'm really going to do is I'm just going to read a whole bunch of other verses for you from other places in the Bible. And we're not going to turn to them. I'm not going to put them on the screen. So just listen as I read these and kind of comment to help us understand this idea. Obviously here, the psalmist is facing persecution. That tells us that a lot of times in life, the godly will face persecution. And they'll face it from ungodly rulers. That's the pattern that we see in this world. Jesus warned us about it. John 15, verse 19. Because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. It's been that way from the beginning. Genesis 15. When God came and he responded to that first sin as he speaks to the serpent, Satan, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And so there are rulers who will persecute the godly. If it's David who's writing this psalm, he may have King Saul in mind. If it's Daniel that wrote this psalm, then maybe it's a Babylonian ruler. We don't know for sure who it was. But the point is, hell is when the persecution comes from those who, according to God's design, are supposed to be your protectors. They're the ones who are supposed to reward good and punish evil. Psalm 47, verse 9, The princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham, for the shields of the earth belong to God. This is what we just sang together. And the shields of the earth there are the rulers. They're being called the shields of the earth because they're supposed to be our protectors. Romans 13, that Brandon read for us earlier, describing what civil authorities should do, 
says that rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what is good and you'll receive his approval. For he's God's servant for your good. That's the way it's supposed to be. But there are times when we have ungodly rulers. And so doing good actually brings persecution on you. And it's a trial when we face persecution without good cause. Injustice naturally grates on us. Psalm 94, verse 20, Can wicked rulers be allied with you, with God, those who frame injustice by statute? We have wicked rulers who actually enshrine evil into law. Our own state is considering that very thing right now. Peter says, 1 Peter 4, 15 and 16, But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed and let him glorify God in that name. Here what the psalmist says in this verse, is he says that his heart stands in awe of God's words. You can either be in awe of God and his word or in awe of the ungodly rulers. And that's going to determine what you're going to do. Who are you in awe of? Ezra 9 and verse 4 says, And all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel gathered around me. That should be us. We who tremble not at ungodly rulers, but tremble at the words of Almighty God. Why should we be in awe of God's words? Well, first of all, because it's the word of God. Thomas Manton says it's God's word, not the word of a weak man, but of the great and mighty God. His authority is supreme, his power infinite, his knowledge exact, his truth unquestionable, his holiness immutable, his justice impartial. Isaiah Chapter 8 says, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. And I think Peter might have been reading Isaiah, because he writes in 1 Peter 3, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts... Honor Christ the Lord as holy. It's what we see Moses doing. It's described for us in Hebrews eleven twenty seven. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. His eyes were on God, not on Pharaoh. God tells us in his word that we can have awe of him partly because he's on our side. Let me read for you Psalm 3. It's a short psalm, just eight verses. O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who've set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. You're probably familiar with the words of Psalm 23, verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, 
I will fear no evil, for you are with me. And Paul says in Romans 8, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And so, the psalmist says, Princes persecute me without cause, but my heart stands in awe of your words. Verse 162 then says, I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil. The godly rejoice at God's word. Why? Well, God reveals to us the best way to live. He's the creator, so he knows how life is supposed to work. And he designed us to flourish. Think all the way back to Genesis, be fruitful and multiply. And he gave us the rules and guidelines of how we're supposed to do that. That's his law. And so Thomas Manton says, those who are most observant of God's will and careful to follow it have the greatest contentment in their souls. The godly see God's word as like finding great spoil, finding a treasure. The paralyzed man found in God's words healing and forgiveness. Timothy found salvation in God's words. The Samaritans heard and their city was filled with great joy. Zacchaeus heard God's words and salvation was brought to his house. God's word has given us new birth, new life. James 1 says, Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And so we delight in God's word. We rejoice in it. Psalm 1, verse 2, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Then the psalmist says in verse 163, I hate and abhor falsehood, but I love your law. The godly should hate falsehood. Love and hate are two sides of the same coin. We get confused about this in our culture. We think that hate is wrong, but hate is necessary. It's immature, childish thinking to say that we should not hate. And you've all seen the yard signs. In this house, we believe that love is love. If you love something or someone, though, if you truly love them, then you hate what threatens them or opposes them. If love is simply tolerance and acceptance of anything, then you will love all kinds of evil. God tells us, though, in Amos 5, hate evil, and love good. If sin is not detestable, it will soon become tolerable. Unfortunately, that describes much of the church today. If sin is not detestable, it will soon become tolerable. And specifically, falsehood is the opposite of truth. God is the God of truth, and so we hate falsehood. And the godly should love God's law. Now, how do we demonstrate our love for God's law? Well, first of all, in this verse, by our hatred of evil, that's one thing. We also demonstrate it by obeying Christ. John 14, 21, Jesus says, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. You want to know who loves Christ? It's the one who has his commandments and keeps them. And the more we hate sin, the more we're prepared to love God's law. See, love and hatred are both natural affections that we have. 
And they're not right or wrong in and of themselves. Their rightness or wrongness is defined by the object. What is it that you love? What is it that you hate? The psalmist hates falsehood and he loves God's word. And then he tells us in verse 164, he says, Seven times a day I praise you for your righteous rules. What does it mean to praise God seven times a day? Well, let me give you a couple of things that it doesn't mean. Um, the Roman Catholic Church has interpreted this to mean the specific seven hours of prayer that they have. Lauds, primes, terse, sext, non, vespers, compline, and matins. So if you go to a monastery or something like that, you'll see the seven hours of prayer being practiced. I don't think the psalmist is giving us a prescription for something like that in particular. It's not a new rule to be followed. It's, not, um, it's also not the idea of praying or praising God without intermission. You know, when somebody has something that they need from you to say, I'm sorry, I can't. I'm, I'm praising God and, you know, this, I just don't have time to help. What does praising God seven times a day mean? Well, seven is the number of perfection or completeness in Scripture. And so I think this is just telling us that there should be a fullness of praise in our lives, a pattern in which our whole life is characterized by praising God. When was the last time you were without reason to praise God? That's always there. We always have reason to praise him. Our hearts should always be prepared Praise God. It should be a regular pattern in your own personal time that you spend with God. When we come together as a congregation, we praise God together. There's times on certain maybe special occasions. You know, in, in Israelite history, you had certain festivals that were set aside for certain celebrations, and there were certain themes and focus for their praise and their prayer. And we don't necessarily follow all those same holidays today, but we do have special days that we've set aside in our own culture today. And so you have things like, for example, in our nation's history, national days of fasting or of thanksgiving. I would encourage you, I'm not going to take the time to do it this morning, but I would encourage you to read George Washington's proclamation of a day of thanksgiving and why he said the nation should pause and give thanks. And what is it that the psalmist is praising God for? He's praising God for his righteous rules. Being instructed in God's rules gives us the means or the raw material that we need with which to praise him. When you understand what the psalmist does about God's laws, think back for a minute over all the things that we've seen in Psalm 119, how the psalmist delights in God's law and he loves it and it corrects him and it gives him the guardrails on his life and it's his reason for hope and all of those things. When you think about all of that, then you have abundant reason to praise God for his righteous rules. Now, we began this morning with verse 161, where the psalmist says, princes persecute me without cause. And clearly the implication there is that the prince, the civil magistrate, is doing something wrong by persecuting the psalmist. And the psalmist is acting in agreement with God's law, and the civil magistrate is persecuting him for doing so. So if it's wrong for the civil magistrate to do this, that implies that there is a standard according to which the civil magistrate should rule. And so in the remainder of our time this morning, the principle that I want us to think about is this. 
civil magistrates are to rule according to God's law. We've talked about this before, and a lot of what I'm going to say this morning we've said before, but it's good for us to hear it again. What is the standard? It's God's law. Does that standard apply to all civil magistrates or only the Israelite ones? Should we expect our civil rulers today to rule according to God's law? Or do we make room for secularism, for rulers to rule according to a different standard? The particular law from the Old Testament that I want us to begin with this morning is found in Deuteronomy chapter 17. So go ahead and turn there with me. I've got a couple of places I'm going to ask you to turn. This is a law regarding kings, and we're not really going to spend much time on this law itself because it's really very simple. We've had a number of laws that we've looked at that have taken a lot of explanation. The meaning of them is maybe not right on the surface. It takes a little work to understand what the, what the law is getting at. This one, not so much. The real question here comes when we ask the question of how we should apply this particular law beyond Israel. How did it apply to other nations? How does it apply to our rulers today? And so that's where we're going to spend most of our time today, understanding the implications of this law. So it'll be our kind of launching off point, but we're really not going to be coming back to this particular law much. Now I have on screen verses 18 to 20, because that's where our focus is. I'm going to go back to verse 14 to get us started, just so we have the context. So follow along with me. Deuteronomy 17, starting in verse 14. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. And what I was commenting on there is that's our requirement that a president in our country has to be a natural-born citizen. That's where that comes from. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. That brings us now to the part that we're focusing on. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priests. When it says this law, it's referring to the entire law that God has given. And it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, that, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. So the king is required to write for himself his own copy of God's law. And then he's supposed to keep it. He keeps it with him. He obeys it. He's to read it all the days of his life. He's to, he's to do it. And he's not to turn aside from the commandment. Now that includes all of his decision-making and judgments as king. So he's to internalize God's law and rule according to it. And the question is then, how does this apply as we look at the role of a civil magistrate as God has taught it to us? So let's look at the role of the civil magistrate. What's the source of a civil ruler's power? 
We tend to think that we have given him power because we think of it our, ourselves as a democracy. But ultimately what scripture teaches us is that all rulers, no matter what system of government, have their power delegated to them by God. He's a minister of God. That's what we read in Romans 13. He executes God's wrath and vengeance. So God's wrath and vengeance is executed on people through that civil ruler, by means of that civil ruler. So he's God's minister. He represents God. Therefore, he has to do what he does according to God's rules. Else, how would he be representing God? He has to act according to God's standards. And if he ceases to do that, if he's no longer promoting the good and punishing the evil, then he's no longer acting as God's representative. Because God doesn't reward evil and punish good. So he's no longer acting as God's representative. He's no longer acting with the authority that's delegated to him by God. He needs to function as a mere individual, exercising power and authority that does not rightly belong to him. The Bible kind of divides power on earth into several different spheres. So there's the sphere of the, of the state, the civil government. There's the church and there's the home. Now, in the state, we have our civil magistrates. In the church, we have elders. In the home, we have the father. And the wife comes alongside the husband to help him in that task. God also, in each sphere, gives tools that are to be used. So the civil magistrate gets the sword. We saw that in Romans 13. And he uses the sword to execute God's wrath and vengeance. In the church, it's the keys, the keys of the kingdom. It's excommunication. It's locking someone out of fellowship with the church if there's unrepentant sin. In the home, it's the rod, the rod of discipline. And so God gives tools for each governing authority to use in the sphere where he's given them that authority. But there are boundaries. There are always boundaries to that power. And for the civil ruler, God limits his authority to the civil realm. He doesn't have authority outside it. That means the civil ruler cannot come into the church and tell the church what they must do or not do. Christians should faithfully proclaim a biblically minimalist view of the state because God has limited the state and we should embrace those limitations. If a civil magistrate rules well, if he does what God says a civil magistrate is supposed to do, what is the effect? Proverbs 14, 34, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to the people. So when the civil ruler rules righteously, the nation is exalted. When the civil ruler allows or promotes sin, the nation is in reproach. And that raises the question then, how does the civil ruler know what is righteous and what is sin? One of the most important questions we can ask and should be asking all the time is, by what standard? What will be the standard to measure what is righteous and what is sin? 
And of course, because it's God who's instituted the civil rulers and it's God's authority. And he's the one who says the civil ruler is promoting the good and punishing the evil. It's God's definition of good and evil that stands. God gets to define what is sin and what is righteousness. Now, many Christians have bought into an imaginary idea, the myth of neutrality. We talk about the neutral public square, the secular realm, as if it's some neutral arena. There is no neutrality. The question is not whether we will have a moral standard, but which moral standard we will have. It's not whether there will be a religious rule, but which religious rule there will be. God does not have a separate set of standards and rules for his people and then another set for secular people because God himself is one. He does not change. He is consistent. And God will be the judge. Psalm 2, the last three verses of it say, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. God's the one who wrote the job description, so he knows what to expect of a civil ruler. And if God says the civil ruler is to reward good and punish evil, then God's definition of good and evil is the definition that counts. And his law reveals to us that definition. And God is also the one who will judge the civil ruler. So God's standard is the one that the ruler should be concerned with. Now, what happens if a people substitute a different standard? Let me just give you a couple examples. One, one way that we sometimes substitute a different standard is when we say, well, the society is going to determine what is good and evil. It might come across as majority rules or democracy or whatever the case may be, but the society is going to determine it rather than God determining it. So we have society's standard. In other words, what we have is social justice. But biblically speaking, justice is an individual thing. Individuals stand before God, either justified or condemned. And if the state embraces social justice, then they're governing according to a standard where they're trying to engineer equal outcomes rather than based on equal worth or value. It's a different system of law that comes from a different source. Another example would be when we say the state is going to determine what is good and evil. If you do that, instead of having God as the source of law, you now have the state as the source of law. That's statism, where the state functions as God. And no matter what kind of a substitute you put in there, you will have problems. Isaiah 5 verse 20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. When you don't accept God's standard and you substitute your own, you are bringing woe, you're bringing judgment on the people. I like this is from Jonathan Burnside. He, he's describing that the whole big system of biblical law and what it's intended to do. And here's what he says. Biblical law is an integration of different instructional genres of the Bible. Fancy terms. Here's what he means. Sometimes you got big principles like the Ten Commandments. Sometimes you have case laws like when we read things like 
don't boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Sometimes you have other things like the festivals or the sacrifices. The whole thing, all those different means of communicating what God's communicating, when you put it all together, he says, it expresses a vision of society ultimately answerable to God. The whole thing all together is trying to paint a picture for us of what a society looks like when it's in obedience to God, when it's living life the way he's designed it. And so, as we think through these things, we come back to kind of this, this main idea. God's laws apply to all rulers and nations. God's laws apply to all rulers and God's laws are the same for all of humanity, for all time. In the Garden of Eden, Adam had God's law written on his heart. And then, hundreds of years later, God reveals his written law at Mount Sinai. Now, do you think it was different than what Adam had on his heart? Did God's laws change? Did his standards change? No, God doesn't change. His standards are the same. It's the same law. And the same standard applies to all men, to all nations, to all rulers. God will judge all nations according to that law. We've seen this before, but let me just kind of walk you through the biblical kind of logical argument that we've seen before for this. Think about the city of Sodom. Sodom faced God's judgment. And why? What was their sin? It was the sin of homosexuality. But that judgment fell on Sodom before God gave the law at Mount Sinai. And this was a pagan people. This wasn't the Israelites. But God judged them according to his law. His standard applied to them even before the written law arrived. Then after the law, hundreds of years after the law comes, think about the city of Nineveh. Nineveh faces God's judgment. After the law, the same standard. The standard has not changed. In Leviticus 18, God warns his people, Israel, that if they commit the same sins as the people who were in the land before them, they will face the same consequences. The land will vomit them out. Same standard, same consequences, whether it's for Israel or the pagan nations. God's law does not change. And God calls all the rulers of all the different nations specifically to obey him. Let's look at it. Turn with me to Psalm 2. Psalm 2. I know we've looked at this before, but it's such a clear statement of God's expectations. It's worth us looking at again. Psalm 2. And this psalm has 12 verses. It divides out nice and neatly into groups of three verses. So I'll just read three verses and give you a comment. Read three verses, give you another comment. Follow along what the psalmist is saying here in Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So there we see ungodly rulers rebelling against God and against his anointed, King Jesus. Verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. 
God laughs at them. He's not afraid of them. He's not worried about it. He laughs at them. And he installed Christ as king. Now, when you get to verse 7, we jump to Christ as king is the one who's speaking. And then he's recounting what the father said to him. Okay, verse 7. I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So God the Father gives the nations to Jesus. They belong to him. He is their king. And then we get the application in the last three verses, the warning that comes to all the other rulers of the earth. Verse 10, now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. God warns the nations and particularly the rulers to obey him. Serve the Lord. Who? All the kings of the earth, all the rulers of the earth are to serve the Lord. That means the mayor of your town is to serve the Lord in that role. All of our Ohio representatives in the legislature are called to serve the Lord in their role. All of our national leaders, Congress, the justices, the president, President Biden is responsible, according to scripture, to serve the Lord. Every ruler of every nation on earth is to serve the Lord. And if they're serving the Lord, what's the standard they will use to rule? His law. His definition of good and evil. How are godly rulers going to rule according to God's law? What would that take? Well, remember what we saw at the beginning in Deuteronomy 17. If they're supposed to rule according to God's law, they have to know God's law. That's why God says to the kings of Israel, Write your own copy of my law and keep it with you. That's your guide. And they also have to know the intentions of the ungodly, just like we read about in Psalm 2. There is no neutrality. Jesus says, Matthew 12, whoever is not with me is against me. And that goes for the rulers of the earth. So we should not make the mistake of the myth of neutrality and think that somehow the public square is to be neutral ground where every religion has an equal voice. What's the source of the law? Probably the biggest thing that Christians find themselves getting caught up in, in opposition to what we've just seen, is the idea of natural law. And I want to be careful here because natural law is a good thing. It's a biblical thing, but I think we often misunderstand it. 
the proposal is something like we should base our nation's laws on natural law, not on biblical law, because we can all agree on natural law. We all know certain things are right and wrong. And the motive is we don't want the church ruling the nation. Now remember, if you're doing things biblically, the church will never rule the nation because that's a totally different sphere. God has not given it to the church to rule the nation. But Romans 1 tells us we have this knowledge of good and evil. And so in theory, we should all be able to agree on a basic morality. Legal systems should supposedly be built on this foundation so that people of all belief systems can live peaceably together in a neutral public square. But how can men with sin natures in a fallen world agree on universal law? See, all throughout human history, and in our nation right now, you can see it, there is no agreement on natural law. We do not agree on what is right and wrong. We can't even agree on what a woman is and what a man is. How would we possibly agree on how to rule legally on these things? There's no agreed on body of natural law. The choice is ultimately between theonomy, where God's law rules, or autonomy, where we make it up ourselves. We come up with our own alternative. Now, natural law is a good thing if we understand it rightly. But it can't provide an alternative law structure. Turn with me to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. I want you to see these verses because this is where the idea of natural law is explained most clearly. Romans chapter 2. So Romans 1, we have the whole, you know, uh, all the teaching that kind of tells us everybody knows there's a God. We all suppress the truth and, and we look at the downward spiral of a society that denies that. But we all have this innate understanding that God exists and that we are accountable to him. Romans 1 establishes that. In Romans 2, verses 12 to 16, though, listen to what is said here. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. So you have people who sin without the law. Okay, so nations where the law, God's law has not been given to them, and they still sin. And you have nations that do have God's law. The prime example would be God's law was given to Israel, and they still sin. But Israel is judged according to that law that they're trying to keep, and they think that that's going to be their means of pleasing God. They're trying to keep that law. They'll be judged according to that law, and they fail. They don't keep the law. They don't keep up with it. But don't miss what is said about the people without the law. What do they do without the law? They sin. What is that? What is sin? Who defines that? Sin is missing the mark, and God's the one who defines it. So they are without the law, but God says they still are sinning, and he's measuring that according to his standard, his law. Continue on, verses 14 to 16. For when Gentiles, who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. That's the verse that defines for us natural law. You've got Gentiles who don't have the written law, but just by their nature, they have some understanding of right and wrong. 
And Paul says when they do that, when they do what's right, according to their own innate understanding, they are a law to themselves, even though they don't have the law. Verse 15, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So Gentiles have God's law written on their hearts. That's natural law. And so their consciences either accuse them when they go against it or excuse them when they do what's right according to that law. And God will judge them. On what basis? By what standard? Well, think about this. Look at verse 14 and ask yourself the question, when is it that the Gentiles are a law to themselves? In other words, when do they have a legitimate natural law? And the answer is when they do what the law requires. What law? God's law. You see how it's still God's law that is the standard. When is natural law good? When it lines up with God's written law. When has natural law gone off the rails? When it disagrees with God's written law. In other words, natural law is only good insofar as it aligns with God's written law. God's law is the standard by which natural law is measured. So natural law, rightly understood, does not differ from God's written law. It's the same standard. So there's no reason for people who have God's written law to say, well, we're going we're gonna to set that aside and put that out of the picture in favor of some kind of so-called neutral natural law. When is natural law good? When it agrees with this. That's what God says. Samuel Rutherford was a Scottish theologian and pastor who dealt with a different kind of challenge regarding the source of law. In his day, the challenge was that the king was the source of the law. The king was above the law. And so the king didn't have to obey it himself because he was the one who proclaimed the law. It came from him. If the king is, in his kingly office, not subject to the law, then sitting above it, whatever his word is, is law. He's then equal to or above God as the lawgiver for that people. And that's blasphemy. However, if the king is under the law, if he's subject to it like everyone else, then he's required to obey God's law in his kingly lawgiving and administration. And so Rutherford's book is called Lex Rex, The Law is King, and he's demonstrating that God's law rules over the kings of the earth. See, God is the true source of law. It flows from his character because God rules over all and all are subject to his law. Every nation, every ruler is responsible to obey God's law. Now, some might object and say, well, today, our laws are different from Old Testament laws. I mean, we eat shellfish and we wear clothes of mixed fibers and we eat ham. The law is given to us in principles. For example, the Ten Commandments. And the case laws are further explanations of it. 
its meaning gets clarified and explained over time. As godly rulers use those case laws to apply the principles to new situations. That doesn't mean the law is changing. The principles are unchanged, but we learn how to apply it to new situations. And hopefully we gain a better understanding of God's unchanging law as we apply it in those new circumstances. And, and here's the application. Here's what, what this whole thing means for us in terms of God's law and our responsibility. I want you to look with me at James chapter one, living according to the law of liberty. So turn, this is the last place I'm gonna have you turn this morning. Turn in your Bible to James chapter one. James one. When the church sets aside God's law in favor of some kind of pretended neutrality, we fall into what's called antinomianism anti-law. We say that we're emphasizing God's grace and we're emphasizing the gospel, but it's at the expense of the standard in his law. At that point, we've left ourselves without an anchor, without a standard in the world. We don't know how we're supposed to think about politics and culture as Christians today because we've bought the lie that it's supposed to be a neutral space where God's law doesn't apply. James is going to help us with how we should live in light of God's law. James chapter 1, look with me at verses 22 to 25. James said, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. He looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So James calls this the law of liberty, the perfect law. What is it that he's referring to? Well, this is in the context of him encouraging people to do the word, not just hear it, to obey God's word, obey God's law. So whatever it means, it has to do with obeying God's word. And the one who perseveres in obeying this law, James says, will be blessed in his doing of that law. Now turn over to chapter 2, and let's look at verses 8 through 12. This is the other place he refers to the law of liberty. James 2, 8 to 12. Here he says, If you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. So speak and, act, and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Okay, so he refers to the royal law, love your neighbor as yourself. Remember, that's one of Jesus's top two. Someone asks Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands hang all the law and the prophets. Those two are the foundational principles that all the rest of the law is built on. So you have those two laws, then you have the Ten Commandments, and then the case laws and the festivals and everything else that works itself out from there. 
James is encouraging his readers to not show partiality. Showing partiality is a specific Old Testament law. It's prohibited to show partiality in a whole variety of different ways. And James is saying, if you do that, you're a transgressor. You're breaking the law. And that means you failed at the whole law. That was his illustration about adultery and murder. So then he says, so speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. So it's in the context of him encouraging them to obey Old Testament law. Don't show partiality. And what he's saying is, if you're a believer, if you have faith in Jesus, you can obey God's law as a law of liberty. Let me try to explain. If you have faith in Jesus, you are no longer under the penalty of the law. You don't have that death sentence hanging over your head anymore. So the law is not a burden to you. Jesus has paid that penalty for you. He's freed you from it. So the person who has faith in Christ, the person who has faith in Christ is now free. They're free from the penalty of the law. They have a new nature, and that new nature enables them to obey the law, not as a means of salvation, but as a means of loving God and loving your neighbor. If I'm a believer, how do I know how, how, do I know how to love my neighbor? Well, James says, by not showing partiality. In other words, obey the Old Testament law. But I can obey that Old Testament law now in liberty, in freedom, because I'm not obeying that law trying to earn God's favor. That's already been given to me. The penalty is not hanging over my head. That's been removed. I am at liberty. I have freedom. And so the law of God becomes a law of liberty for anyone who has faith in Christ. Think of it this way. Who is the most free individual to ever live? Jesus. Did Jesus keep the law? Perfectly. Jesus obeyed the law, and it was his nature to do so. His nature and his will and his desires were all in perfect alignment with God's law. He was perfectly free as he obeyed God's law. Here's how the law brings freedom. I mentioned this in Sunday school this morning. Think about the law against murder. If I'm a murderer, a lawbreaker, then the law against murder does not bring me liberty. It's going to bring me a penalty. But if I'm a law keeper, I'm not a murderer, then the law against murder brings me freedom. It restrains the one who would seek to kill me. The law brings me freedom when I'm aligned with the law. The law is only a burden when I'm the lawbreaker. 
If I'm obedient to the law, then the law brings me freedom because it protects me. And a society, think of it on the level of a society, a whole society that is characterized by theft and unfaithfulness and coveting, that society is not free. That society is enslaved. A society, though, that's characterized by obedience to God and his law, that society is the most free it could possibly be. And in that way, God's law serves as a law of liberty for believers. The psalmist found himself persecuted by princes without cause. Princes, civil rulers, should not oppose God's people. They should instead support and encourage them. They should rule according to God's law. They should be rewarding the good and punishing the evil. Why was the king in Deuteronomy 17 supposed to write out his own copy of God's law? Because that's the standard by which he is to rule. And that applies to every single person who steps into the role of a governing authority, serving as a minister of God for our good. We need to get the idea of a neutral public square out of our minds. There is no such thing as neutrality. Stop thinking that way. But if you have faith in Christ this morning, then you have true freedom. You're no longer under the penalty of the law. Instead, you are free to obey the law out of love for Christ. Not out of fear. Not trying to avoid a penalty. But simply out of love and gratitude to your Savior. That's the law of liberty. And when a people obey that law, they find a truly free society. Let's pray. Lord, I realize that the concepts that we're talking about here are big ideas and they're difficult to wrap our minds around. And one of the things that makes it really hard is that our culture thinks so differently. And we in the church have often adopted the culture's way of thinking about these things rather than letting our hearts and our minds be ruled by your word. I pray that we would be people who seek to be obedient and faithful to your word. Teach us to live according to the law of liberty. Thank you for the freedom that has been granted to us in Christ. May we live as those who are free. We pray for our rulers. We pray that they would follow your law and that when they refuse to, that you would judge them for it, that you would bless our nation with leaders who love you. We pray this in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.